Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we're going to meet 2021 MacArthur Genius Award winner Kianga Yamada Taylor, who's an African-American studies professor at Princeton University and an author. Her work, Mining the Sources and Consequences of Systemic Inequality, shine a light on the work that the American public has done to both produce and thwart fairness and the work that still lies ahead for all of us. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have decided to join us. So there are some awards you can't apply for, can't even find them, and instead, they find you. So it goes with one of America's most prestigious awards, the MacArthur Foundation Genius Grants, which distribute $625,000 of no-strings-attached money to 20 to 30 people who are believed to have completed exceptional work in their field. A number of big names across many different industries have been recipients of this award in the past. Some of those people include historian Jared Diamond, novelist Octavia Butler, and many, many other people that you might know. The new 2021 list of recipients is out, and among them is Princeton African-American Studies professor Kianga Yamada Taylor. Dr. Taylor is an activist, a contributing writer to The New Yorker, and author of two books, including Race for Profit, which details the dynamic of the American housing system and the discrimination in the 1970s uh, and also from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. That's another book that she wrote. <clears throat> she is also editor of How We Get Free, Black Feminism and the Combahee River Collective. Her work spans a variety of topics, including politics, social movements, racial inequality, poverty, the contemporary progressive movement, and much, much more. We will spend the hour today talking about Dr. Taylor's work, talking about America and systemic inequality, and where we go from here. Dr. Kianga Yamada-Taylor, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me on. Glad to be here. So I want to start here. You grew up in part in Buffalo, a city that gets a lot of flack in the same way that uh, our beloved city of Detroit Mm -hmm. does. You You noted both positive and negative experiences that you had being there, including a good English teacher, as well as the condescending nature of some administrators' attitudes in your schools toward black students. Uh, What was it like going to high school in Buffalo? That's an interesting uh, starting point. Um, What was it? I mean, you know, it was in, I was coming from Texas, uh, from Dallas, and um, it was a uh, culture shock in, in some ways. Um, you know, I was at a kind of small uh, public magnet school in, in Dallas that was, um, you know, small classes and very hands-on and, um, you know, a place that was really interested in uh, the intellectual development of the students. And so... Um, when I moved to Buffalo, um, you know, this was a kind of very typical, ordinary uh, public school that sat along um, Main Street, which I describe in that the piece that you're referring to um, as a kind of, uh, you know, uh, apartheid-like border mm. um, in Buffalo. And the school really reflected um, those tensions. And so uh, I was appalled, really, um, at, you know, at, in, in Dallas, you know, my, uh, our government and 
history uh, teacher was an anarchist and had, you know, promoted this kind of critical view uh, of, you know, of, of politics. And, um, and I was, it was a very, in Buffalo, it was a very controlling, um, uh, dominating uh, um, environment in, in my high school. And so, you know, I only talked about um, one transgression, which is I wore uh, a jacket inside of the school, and that was a uh, an offense that uh, got me sent to detention. Another one was um, in my junior year, um, I refused to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, and so I, my homeroom was converted uh, from the room that I was in to uh, the principal's office. I had to uh, go uh, to the principal's office and sit in a room um, off of that office alone every morning <laughs> while the pledge was being uh, recited, <laughs> you know? So uh, it was a very different um, kind of atmosphere that mm-hmm. I clashed uh, wildly with. Um, yeah, it was it was crazy. So, so one of the reasons I think that's an interesting place to start the conversation with you is I, I think that not everybody understands the, the 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 journey that we as African Americans kind of take early in our mm. lives that lead us to some of the uh, the the outlook that we have on life that that this is not um, mm-hmm. this is not something that we just kind of wake up one day and realize but that there are there are external Mm. external inputs, right, that, that mm-hmm. we encounter that give us a, a different perspective on what it means to be an American and what it means to to live oh, in yeah. an America that where, where we are not in control of an awful lot of uh, cultural and political uh, dynamics, but, but, but where we are called almost to, to stand apart and stand out and, and that that shapes in many cases the way that we see the world as adults. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the situation, you know, in Buffalo is just one um, aspect of that. I mean, in many ways, you know, my family uh, were a success story of the, of the 1960s. Um, my folks came of age in the late 1960s. Um, my parents were both had both had doctorates, uh, they went to graduate school at the University of Buffalo. Um, my mother uh, had moved to Dallas, Texas. Uh, she had a doctorate in education. She moved to Dallas, Texas um, in the late 1970s with uh, myself and my older brother um, and to work in the, the uh, school district. Um, she taught teachers how to teach uh, reading. Hmm. Um, and very quickly burned out on that. And, um, you know, by 1982, uh, which is in the middle of uh, the kind of celebrated American revival under Ronald Reagan, there were, you know, it's 22% Black unemployment. And in my own life, that meant, you know, that was the year my mother filed for bankruptcy. Um, and, you know, we lost our uh, house a few years after that, and you know, from sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, until I eventually moved to Buffalo, uh, we moved houses every mm. year. Mm. Um, I became really adept at you know finding books in the library because our uh, electricity um, was turned off. I think at least once a month, mm. you know, and we went to uh, when you could do this, you know, with public budget cuts. This is hard to do now, but. Uh, you know, we'd go to the library until like 10 o'clock um, at night, wow. you know, heating water on the the, the stove because your uh, hot water gas has been cut off. So these are, you know, these aren't particularly unique to black people, mm-hmm. um, but I do think that they are particular when people talk about toss the black middle class around mm-hmm. um, like a political category that is somehow 
can correlate with uh, the middle class experience of white people, um, yes, untrue. And and so I would say that uh, for middle class people, uh, African Americans, uh, these experiences are, are typical, but uh, you know really exist outside of what. Uh, is understood to be of middle class status um, in the U.S. And for some people, you know, like myself, um, this was a part of a kind of long political radicalization. Um, other people, like my older brother, you know, draw different lessons and hmm. you know decide that they need to work harder and um, you know that uh, they can achieve their own um, American dream. And for me, it just raised questions about uh, the efficacy of uh, of our society um, and contrasting that with the grotesque uh, amount of money that is spent, for example, on the military um, or for, you know, warlike uh, endeavors. Um, like part of my coming of age experience was the Gulf War in 1990 and how, you know, there is an inexhaustible uh, amount of money for these things. And, you know, my mother struggles to keep the lights on. Uh, we struggle to keep uh, the, you know, hot water hot. So these are, you know, these are part of uh, these, my own experiences that um, certainly led me down the path to uh, a different kind of, of politics. Sure. Sure. And yet uh, I, I can't help but but pick up on uh, you drawing a contrast between yourself and your brother. And I don't know what uh, what your brother does or, or how successful he is. He's a, he's a sports writer. OK. OK. But but at the same time, you're a professor at Princeton and now you are one of the MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant uh, awardees. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. I guess I'm not sure that that choosing uh, the, the, a life that that focuses on the inefficacies of American society has has been um, uh, detrimental. I guess uh, to your to your professional success, at least not at this point. I mean, I'm and I'm sure you have incredible stories about uh, the struggle. That brought you to the to to these uh, to these kind of uh, absolute pinnacles. Uh, I, I certainly don't mean to suggest that it was that it was easy, but I think there's maybe a, a bit of irony in in and wonderful irony maybe in the fact that uh, you've been able to have such success and at the same time be really shining such a bright light on the things that uh, are shortcomings in our in our society. Well, I think that's that's what happens in the U.S., right? You let a few through and then hold them <laughs> up as uh, spectacular examples of right. how everything works and right. how everything's great. And meanwhile, we always want to generalize from that experience. And, you know, we don't generalize from the more common experience of, you know, Black people in Detroit struggling to keep their water on. Sure. In, in Philadelphia, where I live, there are hundreds of uh, apartments in the city that have been designated by the city of Philadelphia as uninhabitable uh, for human for human beings, right? That they should be condemned, and the city won't do it because they know that it would create a homeless uh, a homelessness uh, uh, crisis. And so you have hundreds of families who live in physically deteriorating uh, uh, apartments, mm -hmm. and so these are. The more common experiences, 40% of Black people who work in private industry um, make under 33 or make under $30,000 a year. 40%, mm -hmm. right? Like that is the common experience. So my situation is completely atypical, <laughs> you know, and we can point to, uh, you know, the handful of Princeton just released a report about its diversity efforts uh, over uh, the last several years, prompted by, um, you know, the activism uh, in 2020. But mm -hmm. you know, to some extent, that had started uh, earlier when Black Lives Matter as a as a social movement um, exploded on on campus. But one number that I noticed was that in the last, you know, I don't know, since the 1980s. 
you know, they had 3% uh, of the faculty were black then. And it's 3% now, right. you know? And so, you know, I think that um, the experiences of the handful of people like myself and some of my colleagues um, at Princeton, and then, you know, the small number uh, of black people who are in the professoriate uh, um, is, you know, is, is an outlier. Sure. Uh, it's certainly not anything uh, common to the experiences of uh, ordinary black people in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. It, it, is, it is hard to get people, I think, sometimes to recognize that. And, and I think there is a lot of uh, cynicism that produces these narratives that suggest that uh, the the outlier examples of black su- success is kind of uh, belie the 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 stories about how most of us live and how most of us try to survive uh, in, in in this society. Yeah, go ahead. I would I would say that more than cynicism, this is a part of the mythological American narrative, which mm. is one of essential all purpose forevermore progress, mm-hmm. right? That we are uh, constantly a nation moving forward, uh, that the arc is always towards progress. And, you know, it's it's an illusory kind of self-conception or self-deception uh, that is really intended to obscure the enormous hardship that exists for most ordinary people um, and I think a lot of times we spend most of the time looking at disparities, right, between uh, black and white, between um, men and women. And those looking at those disparities is important. It can tell you something about the, the level of inequity um, in a society. Uh, but there's a way in which looking at the disparity uh, ignores the even larger disparity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, between the 1% and the 99%, uh, or the, the wealthy and powerful who control most of the wealth and resources in our society, and the vast majority. Because when you look at it that way, then you see that even for white people who, of course, have advantage when you were looking, comparing their circumstance to the circumstance uh, of black people, but when you look at their circumstance and the overall health and well-being of this nation, um, you see a, a, a similar picture of despair, of frustration, of fragility, and instability. And this, you know, I think raises much bigger questions about the nature of our society. Mm-hmm. Why is it so unequal? The idea to the the Median income for African-Americans is like, you know, $47,000. And so for white people, white families, it's $70,000. So that's a big gap between those two. But then you think about it. This is the richest country in the history of the world, right? This is a country that in 2015 had 400 millionaires. Today, or 400 billionaires. Today has 618 billionaires. So you have this enormous concentration of wealth at the top. And then you're looking at, you know, white families making $70,000 a year, which is nothing, which is nothing in the face of inflation. It's nothing in the face of the enormous debt that Americans carry around with them. But we are only, we tend to only look at one range of the disparity Hmm. between black and white and not the way that uh, the most rich, wealthy, and powerful in this country have essentially organized the economy and politics to their to their liking, to their doing, to their benefit, and so that's you know, I mean, that's also part of the the work that you know I'm invested in. Sure, um, is looking at that that bigger picture. Right. Right. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this really wonderful conversation with Dr. Kianga Yamada-Taylor, African-American studies professor at Princeton, contributing writer to The New Yorker and an author, and also the 2021 recipient of one of the MacArthur Genius Awards. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 
Tell us what you make of this moment in the narrative about systemic equality in America. Is it something that you're thinking about? Is it something that you're thinking about the way we teach in schools, which is something I'm going to ask Dr. Taylor about in a little bit. Uh, Also give us a sense of what you think is changing, if anything, in America. All of the conversations that we've been having for the last year and a half, are they making a difference in the way we think about systemic inequality and what we will do to erase it? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest this hour is Dr. Kianga Yamada-Taylor. She's an African-American studies professor at Princeton University and a contributing writer to The New Yorker. She's also an author and a 2021 recipient of one of the MacArthur Foundation so-called Genius Grants, uh, which gives $625,000 of no-strings-attached money to 20 or 30 people who are seen as making major contributions uh, in their field. If you'd like to join the conversation, what we're talking about is systemic inequality, where it comes from, how it feels, how it shapes American lives and minds, uh, but also what it means in this moment where I think we're talking a little more frankly at least, about systemic inequality and its effects on American life, where we are at least considering what could change uh, to make things more fair, more equal uh, in an America that trumpets itself around the world as the paragon of fairness and opportunity. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Dr. Taylor, before we get to listeners, I do want to talk about your book, uh, race for Profit, uh, which takes a look mm-hmm. at, uh, at home ownership, which I think is, is if you're talking about uh, the, the, the kind of uh, pillars of inequality in American society, I think it is, if not the most critical, it's at least one of them because so much of American wealth generally is tied to the idea of home ownership and and intergenerational, uh, the intergenerational effects of home ownership, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, but you have a particular criti- critique of how free market free market actors worked in tandem with the government to extract wealth from black homeowners. Uh, can you talk more about about why that is a critical part of understanding housing discrimination? Sure. Um, so what my book, Race for Profit, is doing that is probably different from uh, other books that write about uh, or that have been written about housing discrimination, racism in the housing market, is that uh, a lot of those books focus almost exclusively on the role of the state or government. Mm-hmm. Um, take Richard Rothstein's book, The Color of Law which is a great book and a book that I teach in my uh, course on uh, race and housing. Mm -hmm. He's been Um, a guest on this show as well. uh, Yeah, no, it's it's a, it's a fantastic book, but it also almost looks at uh, housing uh, race and housing exclusively uh, as a government invention. Um, And so what I'm doing is looking at the way uh, those policies uh, are formed, uh, even, you know, including 
uh, the kind of original redlining practices mm -hmm. of the 1930s, um, you know, we can look at uh, how uh, the federal government in particular uh, forms its uh, practices in public policy. Um, almost always it calls on uh, the private sector uh, to examine the best practices from the private sector uh, as guiding lights in how it shapes public policy. And in housing, it was no different. Uh, the federal government called on um, real estate brokers, on appraisers, um, on bankers to formulate its very first um, public housing, uh, not public housing, but public policies dictating um, what the federal government's relationship to the housing market would be in the 1930s. Um, and the, the best practices in real estate uh, were always racist. They were always based on uh, limiting the exposure of white homeowners to black people. Uh, this was a period of high eugenics hmm. um, and the, the, the turn of the 19th into the 20th century, uh, certainly through uh, the 1930s, the ideas that black people were diseased, that black people were criminals, uh, these all underlie the rationale for segregation. Um, and the real estate industry uh, both uh, helped to promote these ideas um, and to institutionalize them. By the early 1920s, uh, the National Association of Real Estate Boards had already established as a policy that any realtor who was responsible for uh, introducing um, uh, a person of not the uh, kind of dominant race in a neighborhood, so integrating uh, uh, a neighborhood, would lose their license, mm -hmm. would lose their right to practice real estate. And so the this was in the 20s. This was in the teens. This was long before any federal policy had even been thought about. Um, and so the federal government looked to these people to shape its policies. So we have to look at the role of the private sector in relationship uh, to uh, the, the, the public sector to understand um, this history of race and, and real estate, uh, racism um, and discrimination uh, in the housing market. And so my book looks in particular at the development of uh, low-income home ownership programs in the late 1960s and early 70s. Um, and the, you know, Black people were excluded in the 30s, and so they are included in the late 1960s, um, partly uh, as a result of the rebellions and protests, uh, the Black insurgency uh, of the, the late 60s, of which people of Detroit will be extremely familiar. Um, and so there was a belief that if you made Black people homeowners, that, as Richard Nixon said, they would not burn down their own uh, communities. They wouldn't burn the, 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 the cities down. Um, but these programs were created on different terms, markedly different terms than had been created in the 1930s. In the 1930s, the housing was new. It was in the suburbs. There were historically low uh, interest rates. That is the program that white people were integrated into, were pulled into uh, to make, you know, to really cement this idea that the U.S. was a nation of homeowners. By the 1960s, uh, the programs were focused on um, utilizing existing housing and properties in the inner cities, properties that uh, were in poor condition, that were in distressed uh, condition, because the inner city had been uh, cut off from uh, development dollars for the previous you know, 30 or 40 years. Um, and so it was a different housing stock. And then interest rates were historically high. Um, and uh, these were, you know, some of the, the market differences uh, as an entry point um, into home ownership. And probably the most important one is that the program that uh, the federal government instituted during this period relied almost exclusively on private sector uh, actors, those who had been responsible for the marginalization uh, of black people, for excluding black people were now put in charge of this program. Um, and so what 
the, the result was a wave of foreclosures and home abandonments, um, real estate speculators. And this was a huge story in Detroit um, in the 1970s. Real estate speculators would go into um, black working class communities, buy up houses that were in terrible condition, some of which had been condemned, uh, do uh, cosmetic uh, repairs on them, and then uh, use these new government-backed homeownership programs uh, to lure uh, African-American families, uh, and especially families led by single Black women, mm -hmm. uh, into uh, purchasing these homes that were in terrible condition. Uh, and the federal government insured all the, the transactions between um, the banks and, and the, the, the homeowners so that when people went into foreclosure or when people abandoned their houses because they were too expensive to repair uh, and they could not afford them, the, the, the banks got all their money back. So everyone profited except for uh, Black people who had been saddled with these uh, houses. Mm -hmm. And this contributed to um, issues of abandonment, um, and the, the crises of uh, empty houses in Black working class uh, communities, which helped to uh, both threaten the value of existing houses, they became fire hazards, as people in Detroit will know. Um, and, you know, 30 years after the, the, the entry uh, uh, or creation of these programs, the conditions in those neighborhoods uh, brought on in part by uh, abandoned houses, by dilapidated houses, then become the basis for declaring those communities to be subprime mm -hmm. um, and the people who live in those communities to be subprime. So part of what I'm arguing in the book is that we shift from exclusion, redlining, to what I describe as predatory inclusion, mm -hmm. meaning that now Black people can be included um, but because of the condition of their neighborhoods, we will charge them more. We will have higher uh, uh, rates for bank loans. Um, we will attach all of these uh, fines and um, uh, greater expense uh, because, because of those conditions, Black people are seen as risky right. um, for, for banks to lend in. So... This is, you know, it's it's not just about um, moving from exclusion to inclusion. I mean, this is the greater point of my book is that we have to look at what we are being included into. Sure. Um, and that when we are only focused on equity, when we are only focused on the racial wealth gap, when we are only focused on the disparities, we are missing the larger point of this isn't grossly unequal, unfair uh, society. And so the point isn't just to change our relationship to where white people are. The point is to change the larger context within which we are all operating. Mm -hmm. And 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 I want to make sure that I say to our, our callers, we do have a, a bunch of callers who want to participate in this conversation that we are going to get to you uh, as soon as we can, Adrian in Detroit, Keisha in Detroit, Tim in Detroit, you will be up first. Uh, but before that, I, I, I want to follow up on on this point that you're making, which I think is is incredibly important. Um, and and this idea that um, the idea that the problem is the system itself, and that it lands uh, with a, a more force and power on African-Americans, the inequality of it mm -hmm. lands more powerfully on African-Americans, but that it is itself unequal is, I think, one of the, the, the keys to beginning a conversation about the, the, the allyship that should exist between mm -hmm. African-Americans and poor whites who, for different reasons and, 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 and inside of different systems are suffering from the same consequences of mm -hmm. that inequality. That is, I think, the one of the hardest points to make in yeah. the narrative about inequality in this country. Absolutely. So I would say instead of allyship, I would say 
solidarity. Solidarity, right. Um, <laughs> Common interest. That, yeah, that we we would both benefit um, from uh, a, a change in how the system uh, functions. And so, you know, there are important uh, barriers and impediments to that, racism um, being the, the, the most central one. Sure. And, you know, and I think that um, that, you know, that is part of the, the challenge of uh, those of us who are vested in, in organizing um, in politics right now is kind of trying to lay bare uh, the what some of us refer to as the systemic uh, uh, inequities um, uh, in this country. And the sy- systemic aspect of them uh, is not just about uh, the disproportionately harsh uh, impact that it has on Black families, um, but that this is a, a, a system-wide problem that does not work for most people if you are not uh, rich, powerful, and wealthy. And I think home ownership is an important uh, uh, lens through which to examine this. Because think about how you know you said earlier that you know uh, owning a home is is people's biggest asset, wealth building, all true. And the the question I think that we have to start asking is. Why do we live in a society uh, in which now our own personal ability to accumulate wealth is what determines our quality of life? Mm-hmm. Imagine if we were in a situation where, uh, you know, if your child wanted to go to college, that college was was paid for, that college was free, that health care was seen as a right and not as a privilege. So healthcare is uh, uh, available and provided for. Um, you know, people use home ownership as a way to ensure that they have a dignified um, uh, retirement. People use the equity vested in a house to weather healthcare uh, emergencies or financial crises. What if we had a society that instead of investing almost $1 trillion a year in the military, uh, invested in those kinds of social structures, then I think you would see a different kind of relationship to home ownership, Hmm. where people, not only would there not be a kind of hysteria to to get into the market, right? But I think that the whole hysteria around property values and maintaining property values uh, would would change because why do you need you know this enormous attention paid to property values mm-hmm. because you're using your house to do all these things that society does not do right so we're we have a you're on your own uh, society um, where you are responsible for dealing with all of these issues and so this is a deeper problem than just looking at the gap between black and white homeowners. It's an important gap to look at because, you know, black people uh, being um, excluded in various ways from homeownership mean that black people have to deal with the vicissitudes of the rental market, Mm -hmm. which is horrific. I mean, rents are 20% higher this year than they were last year. And so so that is an issue. That's not a non-issue. But just simply saying we need more black homeowners doesn't deal with this bigger issue of why have we left each individual to, you know, buy the correct home so that they can take care of all of these uh, other things, education, healthcare, retirement. Um, These, I think, should be uh, societal uh, societal issues. Right. Our society should provide these. Yeah. Okay, uh, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Kianga Yamada Taylor, and we will get to your calls and your social media comments. Adrian in Detroit, Keisha in Detroit, Tim in Detroit, you will be up next. Uh, Mitchell in Farmington Hills, we'll get to you as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
listening to Detroit Today on Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Uh, Our guest this hour is Dr. Kianga Yamada-Taylor. She's an African-American studies professor at Princeton and a contributing writer to The New Yorker. She's also the 2021 recipient of one of the MacArthur Foundation so-called Genius Grants, which awards a lot of money to people uh, that it sees as making major contributions in their field. Uh, We're talking about uh, her work, which focuses on the inequality we see in American society today, where it comes from, uh, what its consequences are, and what we might do to produce different outcomes We want to hear from you as well. Uh, Give us a call and let us know what you think of this moment in the conversation about inequality in America. We're in a different moment for sure than we were before the pandemic. The question, I think, is whether that difference will produce change, actual change, uh, that makes things fairer for everybody in this country. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Let's start today with Keisha in Detroit. Keisha, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. And Dr. Taylor, I'm so thankful for you in this very important and much-needed conversation about inequality in America. I was sharing with the um, young... Oh, can you guys hear me? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, so I was sharing with the young man who answered the phone that, you know, I was, so yesterday I was helping out a friend of mine who's a business owner who needs a truck, right? Mm-hmm. And recently his truck broke down and I'm watching him like a business owner who I know for a fact works harder than anyone else that I, I know for the most part, a black man and mm-hmm. cannot qualify, cannot qualify for a car note, cannot you know, get a truck rental from so many places. You know, the, the story that we know goes on. So, I, you know, he called me yesterday, and I wanted to support him in getting a truck. So he gave me over $1,000 and told me he reserved the truck at a budget facility out near the airport. And I go out there, I'm standing in line, and there's a white woman and a white man in front of me, both, you know, also trying to rent cars. They had just flown in town, had all of their bags. And the, the sales reps tell them, you know, when you use a debit card, you're subject to a credit check and Equifax has the final say. Mm-hmm. And both of them, both of them got wow. denied. And then both of them immediately start talking to the reps and they were like, hey, like, you know, I know my credit score is bad, but I have like this much money with me. I'm here in town. Like, can you please, like, can I put more money down? Can I do something? Because I need a car to get around. And they were like, no, like our system won't even allow us to bypass it. They both called for the manager, right? And I'm a black woman. So I'm watching this happen wow. thinking, okay, well, one of them's going to get resolved because this is a white woman and a white man we're talking mm-hmm. about. At some point, one of them's going to get resolved. And neither of them did. They were both told, you cannot rent a car. Mm-hmm. And, it, it, and, and, and as I'm watching my black man friend, like, struggle, like, to get a truck, I, you know, and, and, and so angry about that because I see how hard he works and him and I are having this conversation about the fact that he's even in a position that to run his business he has to rent a truck from budget and then I go to budget and see this white man and this white woman are basically dealing with the same thing and immediately it hits me yesterday so hard that like the inequality that's happening in America between the one percent and the rest of us is so stark that mm. even the average white woman and white man are can't even get a rental car. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so I just I just wanted to share that story because it was something that really Thank impacted you. me yesterday. Yeah. Keisha, I really appreciate you calling and sharing that. I mean that it, story. it's so it's such a it's such a um uh racket, right? You know, like they send us we don't make enough. Mm-hmm. People don't make enough. So they send us these credit cards, right? Like they, they advertise credit cards everywhere. They send you credit cards in the mail. Uh, and, and people take the credit cards to make ends meet. And then you've got the credit companies, right? Who then say that uh, make the final determine, determination on, you know, is your credit good? Is your credit bad? You know, Americans are walking around with all of this debt and the whole thing is just is just a racket. And that's yeah. I mean, that's that's an example of, uh, you know, the way that um, there are there are most aspects of this racket uh, fall heaviest on uh, black families, on on, you know, brown families, undoubtedly. But there are very few people. Um, who are benefiting 
mm. wholesale from this social arrangement mm. that we have in the United States. Mm. I mean, this is appalling. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Keisha, again, I really appreciate that you called and and gave us that really wonderful example of exactly what we are we are talking about today. Thank you again for the call. Let's go to Adrian in Detroit. Adrian, welcome yeah. to the show. Good morning, uh, Dr. Taylor, Stephen Henderson. Thank you for the show. Um, all I can say is, Stephen, you need two hours and not one hour for this topic. <laughs> You're going to work me harder, Adrian. Oh, my God. And Dr. <laughs> Taylor, I'm thanking you for pe- opening that door so I peep in every once in a while when it brings back a flood of emotions. Mm. I went to school in 1973 where I, I end up getting two degrees because I had a child in my sophomore year, and my instructor told me if I must bring my child to school, I should stay at home. Mm-hmm. I end up getting a degree in chemistry and a degree in nursing. But through the tears, the anxiety, the lack of support, my parents who were not weren't high school graduates told us, you must mm-hmm. go to school. They didn't tell us how. All they told mm-hmm. us that that you must go to school, and to school I did go, and it was rough. That mm-hmm. no one can explain to you if you hadn't gone to school in the early seventies, what we were ten years removed from the first time mm-hmm. you could vote. It was something. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely something. Mm-hmm. And, and I thank you for the conversation, Stevens. And I'm going to be picketing outside. Dan, we need a two-hour show. <laughs> please, please don't. <laughs> I really appreciate the Send call. a strongly uh, worded uh, letter to the producers. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Adrian, I really appreciate the call and, and the comments. And, and again, Dr. Taylor, it's this, I think, uh, the lack of understanding and recognition of the, what the struggle looks like for African Americans is one of the things mm-hmm. that's really difficult, uh, and and I think Adrian there is really, again, illuminating what it was like, and that it wasn't that long ago. That's the other yes. thing I think yeah. uh, people forget is you're not talking about ancient history; it's the history of people who are with us today. It's what yeah. people experience. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Tim in Detroit, you're up next. What's on your mind, Tim? Uh, hi, uh, Professor. Uh, uh, Kianga, my daughter's name is Kianga, by the way, Sunday. <laughs> uh, listen, I think this this uh, nonsense that we experience in America would end in a few weeks because uh, white folks are, are catching hell, and I think – you know, just telling white people, well, at least you're better off than black folks. If they turn on the TV and they see these black millionaires, they're not buying that anymore. So they can end this. <laughs> they come together with black and end this stuff in, in a matter of weeks. Good day. Uh, Tim, I appreciate the call. I mean, I wish I wish it were I wish it were that easy. Yeah. I, I think you we have, you know, um, there's so many wrong explanations for. Uh, the social conditions as they exist that are promoted through the the, the press that are promoted uh, through popular culture that have become common sense, you know. And one of them is that uh, you know black people are poor, white people are not, and so black poverty is is seen as kind of everywhere and um, almost uh, emblematic Mm -hmm. of what poverty is uh, and where there is, you know, hardship among white people, um, it is seen as exceptional, rare, Mm. um, and, you know, almost like a a spectacle. Uh, And so you add that with segregation um, and the ways that, you know, what typically happens in uh, black communities are shrouded from public understanding. I mean, that was part of what was so powerful about the protest in 2020 is that it pierced uh, the the veil. It broke through the wall and, and people could see what it's like in black communities that live in under police state-like conditions where the police uh, operate freely and and willfully, and they can stop you at any time. They can question you at any time. They can beat you up, and sometimes they kill you, and it barely registers in the wider society. And so, you know, part of, I mean, this is part of why protests are important, is because 
it forces the public to engage with the issues that are being uh, demonstrated against over a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. But it's not just protests, it's also uh, politics. I mean, we think of politics as as what professionals do, uh, as what happens in uh, Washington, D.C., but politics really is also about what ordinary people uh, do and offer as explanations for what uh, is happening and also put forward um, ideas about social change and social transformation. And this is, you know, this is part of, of what it means to, uh, you know, I think build a meaningful movement that challenges people's ideas, that challenges the common sense, uh, that offers different kinds of explanations for what is happening, um, and that puts forward a different vision uh, for how society can be organized and arranged. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Dr. Kianga Yamada-Taylor, it was really great to have you here with us. Thank you so much. Yeah, Thank you, and was... congratulations again on the Thank uh, you. MacArthur. It's a wonderful I appreciate honor. it. Yeah. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we'll talk about the changing landscape of public health in America through the COVID-19 pandemic and beyond. And if you didn't see it, you should take a look at the stories that are out today about Michigan being the second highest state for new COVID cases other than California. We are headed back toward a really dark space. We'll talk about what that looks like tomorrow. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.